All right, so we are in Revelation 20. Um, chapter 20, um, as I have been arguing throughout, is just another one of these recapitulations. This is the sixth and final recapitulation that we have seen, which, re- which lays out the high king's uh, course, character, and consummation of his reign, right? So we look, we see Jesus's um, course of his reign. We see the character of his reign. We see the consummation of his reign. All of these cycles that we've been looking at are, are giving us pictures of the church age and the consummation. In other words, they are giving us a picture of the kingdom of God and its advancement on earth. And chapter 20 is no different. Once again, we will see the course, the character, and the consummation of Jesus' reign. Now, the reason why I think these, these cycles of recapitulation are the best way to understand Revelation is because let's think about the book, right? The book itself is a huge symbol. It's a symbol of the victory of Christ. It is a symbol which declares God's plan of redemption, retribution, and restoration. And let's go back to the first creation. How many days did God create? Six. And what did He do on the seventh? And here we have six cycles of God showing His plan of redemption and retribution to lead to the seventh, Revelation 21 and 22, which is restoration, recreation. So this is the way to understand it. And I think that that will be very clear as we both go through this cycle. So once again, this cycle, uh, my argument is that it should not be seen as chronological. As we saw last week, what did Revelation 19 end with? It ended with what? The final judgment. Complete and utter destruction. There was nothing left over. The birds of the air were full. Why? It was a picture of complete and utter final devastation. There's nothing left over. That's going to be very important when we see the words of Revelation 20. Because if there was nothing left over from the war that we saw in Revelation 19, then the stuff that is being told of Satan and others in Revelation 20 won't make much sense. How could he deceive nations that don't exist anymore? Because they've just been utterly destroyed. So once again, we need to see this is a new cycle starting over. I think that will be more clear as we lay it out tonight. So let's go ahead and we're going to read. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Because 1 through 6 lays out one of the most controversial topics, really, in Christian theology. What has been known as the millennium. What is this crazy, weird thousand years that we find nothing else in Scripture about? There is nowhere else in Scripture that you will find anything in the New Testament about a thousand year reign or anything. And yet, one section of Scripture, two verses, have become a central point of utter divisiveness and debate in the church. I think wrongly. So we'll talk about that tonight. So let's read verses 1 through 6, but we are going to just be expounding on verses 1 through 3 tonight. Revelation 20, verse 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. 
And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a lot of pictures here. A lot of symbols, a lot of things that we don't hear about anywhere else in the New Testament. We don't hear that term first resurrection anywhere else in the New Testament. We don't hear that term thousand years anywhere else in the New Testament. It's one of the great dangers of building any doctrine on singular text. Because the overwhelming majority of the cults that have come out of Christianity overwhelmingly started out of this chapter. The Millerite movement, the Seventh-day Adventists, and all of them, where did that begin? It began out of false interpretations of when the thousand years were going to be. When's this going to happen? False prophets saying, it's happening right now. This is when it's going to happen. It'll be this year, this time. Even modern day individuals, Hal Lindsey, great late planet Earth, right? Have all looked at this period and said, this is when it's going to happen. Trying to decipher based on signs and all of these other things. Rather than letting Scripture interpret Scripture. This is the most debated chapter in the New Testament. I really believe it. And there are a lot of reasons why. and Primarily because of the high nature of symbolism that's within it. And secondly... Because there are just no one-for-one references anywhere else in Scripture that we can go to directly and say, well, yeah, here, here in Luke 14 it talks about a thousand years. Or, or over here it talks about a first resurrection in, in Colossians 2. Right? We, we've got to really look through the wording to the symbol it's representing. It's like we've had to do throughout Revelation. So when we look at the major divisions that have happened over this chapter... We talked a lot about this in our opening uh, lectures in Revelation, uh, kind of those preparatory studies that we did, those introduction to Revelation. We talked about three major interpretive views to Revelation. And I don't want to rehash all of that if you've forgotten or you want to go re-listen that. I think it was our first or second um, message that we did on Revelation. You can go back and re-listen to a more in-depth study on that. I don't want to go too deep, but I want to just kind of briefly recap these three uh, predominant views um, that are in the church today uh, with, with obviously recognizing that with all of these, you're going to have your offshoots and everything else. Uh, but these are the primary views within Christian theology. So the first is the premillennial view, right? And it's pretty much what it means, that these, 
that Christ returns pre the millennium. He returns pre the millennium. So they'll look at Revelation 19 and say that is chronological. This is happening right after that. This picture of the binding of Satan, the establishing of the thousand years, this is coming after Christ came and just waged a universal battle where he literally slayed everybody. And so in in this view, right, the millennium will occur after the second coming of Christ where Christ will reign physically on earth for there are some who hold to a very literal 1,000 years. There are some who just say, well, no, it's symbolic. It's going to be for a long time. Um, but nevertheless, they will, Christ comes. He physically reigns on earth with glorified saints. So all of us that have went with Christ before are now back with Him. He's glorified and we're glorified. But there's other groups that aren't glorified. They're individuals that are going to be alive because the premillennial says, well, he slayed most of the nations in Revelation 19, but there's still a small remnant that he didn't slay. And so you have this interesting thing where Christ is ruling on earth, glorified Jesus. We're not talking about incarnation Jesus. We're talking about Jesus in glory, reigning with glorified saints, with non-glorified cursed individuals who are going to kind of come to Christ and believe Him, there's going to be a semi-cursed state, a semi-suffering state, because those individuals who aren't glorified are still going to die. They'll just live extra longer. They'll go to places like Isaiah 65 and say, see, it says it won't die until they're 125. So there'll be people who are still going to be dying, even though the glorified Jesus has come. There's still going to be curse, even though the glorified Jesus has come. You're going to have glorified people and non-glorified people living side by side as if glory and sin can dwell together. And those are my greatest problems with that system. Is because to have that system work, it has to contradict clear teaching in Scripture. That sin cannot dwell in the presence of the Almighty and His glory. Secondly, We've seen throughout Revelation that it is not meant to be read chronologically without, outside of those cycles. That each of these cycles are self-sustaining cycles. So we don't need to see this chronologically. Secondly, when we looked at what, what reason why Satan is bound, why is he bound? He's bound from deceiving the nations. Revelation 19 makes clear that all of the nations come against Christ and they are laid waste. They're destroyed. Not only that, but this premillennial view teaches two second comings. A first coming and a second coming. Where Christ's destruction of evil was ultimately incomplete in the first. And these are problems that I just cannot hold to. How individuals could be in the presence of a glorified Savior. Still reject Him. How sin could dwell in the presence of the Almighty? No, my friends, I don't think that works. He shielded himself in the first coming, but everything we have read over and over about those pictures of his second coming show there is no holding back of his glory. And so, 
This view, though, is a very popular one. And there are distinctions, right? There's historical premillennialism and there's dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism uh, primarily argues that this will be a time when basically a reestablished uh, Israel, a physical Israel will happen again. A physical temple will be rebuilt. Jesus will reign physically from Jerusalem where it is now. There will be a recapitulation of the sacrificial system, which you can't read Hebrews and think that that's okay. The book of Hebrews undermines that dispensational system. And as I've tried to show throughout this, it undermines any notion that God was not faithful to His promises to Israel. The New Testament makes clear that He has been and is being faithful. Because Israel, not all Israel, is of Israel. Only those who are in Abraham by faith. That's Paul's whole argument in Galatians. So that's why this system just falls apart for me. This view where Christ comes, physically reigns, while there's still a semi-cursed state, a semi-suffering state. That, that gives me little hope as a believer. That, 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 what's the Maranatha for if he's just going to bring back a semi-cursed state? I don't think that's the way the Scripture teaches it. We see in the, in the teachings of Jesus, the more clear teachings, right? Jesus says there's an age and an age to come. There's curse and then there's new creation. There's sin, there's glory. That's it. This two-age system. And so when we get to these more difficult passages, we need to let the clear passages help us understand them. So that's why I, that's why I personally reject the Does that mean that... I don't think my premillennial brothers are Christians. No. No. It's just I reject that because I think that in order for that system to work, it has to undermine the clear teachings of Scripture regarding the relation of sin and glory, the power of Christ in His true coming, the reality that it is victory when He comes complete and utter, not partial. The other view, which has really been taking off recently, is post-millennialism, right? Which is now Christ comes after the millennium, post-millennium. Holds that the millennium occurs towards the end of the church age and that Christ's climactic coming will occur at the close of the millennium. So this view, um, we agree, I, I agree on in one form that Christ comes at the end of the millennium. But we disagree on the nature of what those thousand years represent. Postmillennialists argue that what, we're, what you're going to see throughout church history is the steady advance and victory of the gospel. Amen. But their understanding of the nature of that victory is where we now part ways. For the postmillennialists, right, ultimately as the, as the gospel goes among the nations, right, all culture and countries will be radically transformed to being Christian. At the end of the age. So they see, right? They look at the parable of the mustard seed. And rather than looking at that as merely the growth of God's people, they see that as a picture of the world. And what happens is ultimately the world will be radically Christianized up until the very end where there will somehow be another rebellion that takes place. And then Christ is going to return to that. But that rebellion is going to be very small very minuscule compared to the massive nature of 
the kingdom of Christ. And so they look at this and they go, ultimately, the kingdom advances. But like the premillennialist, the church will ultimately advance into a world that is both semi-cursed and semi-suffering. The gospel is what will bring that about. So they'll look at the world and say, over time, through the church's uh, advance, through the fruits of the gospel, uh, ultimately the world will get into a, such a place of, of, of beauty because of the church's influence that we will, almost, we will usher in the millennium ourselves through the gospel. Right Now, obviously they're saying Christ is the power through it, but he's working through the church to bring about a semi-curse, semi-suffering state that he will enter into and basically get rid of the remaining remnants. Now, what's my primary uh, disagreement with that? Well, one, I think that when we look at these recapitulating cycles of Revelation, um, we see a world that constantly stays as an enmity against the body of Christ, right? A world that constantly stays hostile to the bride of Christ, hostile to the, the people of Christ, that remains in its cursed state until he comes. That's, that's Romans 8, right? It groans longing for his return, right? Not only that, but when we look at some of the parables of Jesus, right? When he talks about the wheat and the tares, notice in that parable, the wheat and the tares grow side by side. They, they grow together. So as the church and the gospel indeed advances and indeed is absolutely victorious in what it came to do, save every one of Christ's people from the nations, the evil will grow side by beside it. Because the same gospel that saves hardens. It hardens sin. And so as you see these ebbs and flows of those realities, the gospel will indeed be victorious. I agree that with my post-millennial brother. But I disagree on the nature of what that gospel advancement looks like. Of what Christ's victory looks like in this present age. Which will always be under the curse until Christ comes to utterly remove it forever. That brings us to the third view. And the view that, that I hold to. And by that I'm saying I hold. I'm not saying anyone else has to hold to this. But I just think this is the consistent Biblical model, and that is inaugurated millennialism. It's often called amillennialism. It's a horrible name. Uh, ah, in the, the Latin prefix, means no. So no millennium. That's not what we believe. We just believe that the nature of the millennium is different than what both the premillennialist is looking for and what the postmillennialist expects. We just believe that the nature of the millennium is different. So when we talk about inaugurated millennium, we simply mean that we believe that the millennial reign of Christ was inaugurated at Christ's resurrection and will be concluded at his final coming. In other words, the thousand years pictured here is a picture of the entire church age, the entire era of proclamation from Christ's first coming to his second coming. There will be no semi-cursed state, no semi-suffering. When he comes, that's it. That's it. And right now, the believers of Christ really reign with him. Right now. You reign with him and you will reign with him. 
He is already ruling and he will rule. The already, but the not yet. This is what we call inaugurated millennialism. And my hope is is that as you see through the preaching of Revelation 20, the consistent unfolding of biblical revelation that will help you see that glorious reality. That you have a king who has not postponed his reign, who has not put off his kingdom, but is very much reigning now. And what that means for us as the church of Jesus Christ. So, with those positions in mind, uh, let's look now to this very debated point of what is talking about here in these opening verses of chapter 20, looking tonight at the binding of Satan. So let's read it again, verse 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Okay, so what we're getting from the the outset here is very symbolic language. An angel holding a key and a chain you can't, you can't think that that's literal, right? It's not literal. Like he's not coming out with a big, massive golden thing and like this just chain coming down. And we know that it's symbolic because look at how it describes Satan, a dragon. So already from the outset, right, John is make, wanting us to see the apocalyptic nature of this. This is revelatory language. These symbols mean something. They mean something more than just a one-for-one parallel, Right? So he's holding a key and a great chain. Well, have we seen anywhere in Revelation a picture of a key? We've seen lots of keys in Revelation. But the most important key is found back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, we saw that glorified image of Jesus. Verse 18, we're told this description about Jesus. That he is the living one who died and behold is alive and forevermore and has the keys of death and Hades. He's got the key. So this angel, right, this picture of the angel, is merely one who's coming from the presence of Christ, who is coming from Christ to come down with this key to basically seal or lock away or bind Satan. This great change is merely a picture of him sealing and binding him for a very specific purpose as we see. This picture of the bottomless pit, or the abyss as it's called in others, is not some, you know, if you dig deep enough, you'll get there. This is a spiritual realm. Right? Heaven is a spiritual realm. This abyss, this this place of darkness, this bottomless pit, it is a spiritual realm. We live in a spiritual realm. And I know we forget that because we're Westerners and so we live in our material box. And every now and then Jesus breaks into it. But we live in a very spiritual world. And this is merely, right, a, a place, this abyss, the bottomless pit, is a place that is reserved solely for fallen spirits. It is reserved for them. It is, it is their abode where only they are kept 
And they are only allowed to go in and out of that based upon the sovereign will of God who allows them to do so. We've seen that throughout Revelation. They can only come out when, when Christ allows. So we see that he sees the dragon. He binds the dragon, we're told. That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, right? And so here we get that. We get four descriptions, right? He's the dragon. He's the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. And so here we're getting the full gambit now. Why? What is all of these cycles sought to do? To help give us clearer and clearer revelation of the victory of the Lamb. And so now it makes sure you know who this dragon is. So it gives you the full gamut of descriptions. It's the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. It's him. That's who he has come to bind. Now, what in the world is this talking about? When did this happen? How is this going to be? Has it already happened? Is it going to be future? What in the world is being talked about here with this chain binding of Satan? Once again, we've got to ask ourselves, when you're coming to difficult texts like this, is there anywhere else that I have something that gives me insight to this? Is there anywhere else that gives me any window to this? Is there anything within the immediate context of Revelation that has given us any window into a defeat or binding of Satan? And the answer is absolutely. Turn with me to Revelation 12. And if you have your Bible, I, I really just recommend following me. I want you to see it. And I don't want you to hear it from me. I want you to see it. Revelation 12, verse 7 through 9. Remember Revelation 12, this great picture that we got of cosmic battle. We see the dragon pursuing this woman who gives birth to a male child, one who is going to rule the nation. So what does the, the, the dragon want to do? He wants to eat that child. He wants to devour it. Who's the child? Jesus. But what happens? The child is taken away by the father. Picture of Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension, all in one, real wrapped up there. But after that happens, after the victory of this male child, the victory of the Christ child, notice the next scene. Revelation 12, verse 7 through 9. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. It's the same picture. A mighty angel having the keys that, get, that were given to him by who? Christ. Binding the dragon, throwing the dragon down. What is this picture here? Once again, same picture, different vantage point, different details to tell us something about what's going on here. Revelation 12 and Revelation 20 are giving us the same picture of Christ's victory, His defeat of Satan. And because of His defeat over Satan, Satan has now been rendered from doing certain things. In Revelation 12, He is rendered from what? accusing the people of Christ. His place in, as the accuser of God's people within the divine council has been lost. 
That's why Paul could say in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. For who can bring an accusation against them? Nobody. Because at Calvary, Christ threw down the accuser. Because now, anytime he wanted, he could ever try to appeal to the Father of look at what these people's done, all that the Father can see is the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. All he can see is his Son. So therefore, there is now no condemnation. So Revelation 12 is all about the destruction of the accuser. Now, and not only is, can he not longer accuse against God's people, but as we will see as we continue through, He cannot, right now in the church age, deceive the nations in such a way that they can root out the church in its entirety. They can't destroy the church. Talk more about that in a second. But it's the same picture. So so already, right, we have in the immediate context of Revelation a picture of a mighty angel binding Satan for a very specific purpose based upon the victory of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So that's a good place to start. But now, let's talk more about this binding. Now, we need to start going from the immediate context outward. Are there other parts of Scripture that give us details of Satan being bound by Christ's first coming? And indeed, there are many examples of this happening. So let's first talk about the moment of his binding. When was the moment of this binding? It happened in the first coming. During the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus came, when he said to tell us die, he wasn't just talking about your salvation. He was talking about absolute victory. He fully and completely defeated the dark forces in his first coming. He defeated them in his first coming. He will destroy them in the second coming. Defeated them in the first coming, gathering complete and utter authority over them. He took back everything that they had over this earth. All authority is now mine, he says in Matthew 28. It's mine. It's no longer theirs. Why? Because he was really victorious. That that cross really did something. It wasn't plan B. It was a cosmic message of victory. Not just for a few people who believe in him in this life. It was all of the above. He rendered Evil, toothless at cross. He defamed Satan at Calvary. And we see this throughout Scripture. Matthew chapter 12 is the first example. Matthew 12, verse 25 through 29. The context of this, Jesus has just healed and cleansed a man who was demon oppressed. We all know what happens, right? The Pharisees say very clear what they think this power comes from. This man cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, they say. This is the devil who is casting out these demons. Okay. This is what Jesus has to say in Matthew 12. Listen to the language he uses, verse 25 to 29. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. For if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? 
And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But, this is the connection with the sermon this morning. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. What's Jesus saying there? I'm not only not doing this by Satan. These demons are being cast out because I came. And the kingdom of God is here, he says. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this by the Spirit of God. Remember what John says? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come. Why can't it come? Because the kingdom of God's here. Mm-hmm. Unless you think he took it away when the Jews rejected him, then you can't have Pentecost. Right. Which literally, Peter says, this is here because the kingdom of God's here. Mm-hmm. So he has to, he, he is doing this because the kingdom of God's come. And so these demons are being cast out. Why? Because all the Old Testament made very clear that when the Messiah comes to establish the kingdom of God, he will do so by destroying the spirits of darkness which have power over this world. And who is the little g, God of this age? Satan, the prince of the powers of the air. So if Jesus is going to come and pluck From out of this house, this world, broods of vipers, sons of Satan, what does he have to do? He has to bind the strong man. He's got to bind him. And the fact that these demons are already being cast out is said, it's good as done. The cross made it clear. Let's look at another. This is one of my favorite texts in all the Bible. John chapter 12, verse 31 through 32. This is in the context of the triumphal entry. This is Jesus' final week. And Jesus is very troubled by what he knows is coming. He even says there in verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. He goes on down. Look at what he says in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Where? To the abyss. That's the only place he's going to be able to operate out of. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What's he talking about? When I go to Calvary, that's what he's talking about. When I get lifted up, and then when I get ascended, I'll draw all people to myself. He's talking about the nations. Because before this, we see that there were some Greeks seeking him out. This is the context. So he's saying that when I get lifted up, the enemy, this strong man, this God of this age, little G, he will be cast out, thrown down. Because when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. All nations, all peoples will come to me. Because I'm victorious and I'm plundering the house. Let's look at another one. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. This gives you the picture of Christ's authority over the powers of this age. 
Colossians 1, another one of my favorite texts. 1 verse 15. We'll start in 15 and then 16. We're throwing 15 in there just because it's awesome. Paul writes, He is the image, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Now, starting there for reason. Because this is what Christ is coming back to gain. He, as the Creator of all things, has authority over all things, all dominions, all principalities. And what the fall did is it put a fracture in the cosmos. And so when He came to go through Calvary, to be resurrected and ascended to glory, it was to make things right and to reestablish the authority that had been fractured by the fall. And those fallen principalities and demons, he now has absolute sovereignty and authority over because of his victory. Let's move over to the next chapter, Colossians 2 now. Looking at verse 13, we see when this binding happened. And you who are dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's not talking about worldly rulers and authorities. Paul, remember, we don't war against flesh and blood. This is the demonic forces behind all the worldly authorities and powers. This is the fallen principalities and spirits that are at work, and we're going to see that a little bit more clearly later on. He disarmed them, publicly triumphing over them. When did that happen? At the cross. That's the context at the cross. He disarmed all principalities and powers. He bound Satan at Calvary so that he could plunder the nations. One more. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. The writer of Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Through death, he defeated it. So, He's already defeated. He's already bound. He was bound when Christ went up on Calvary and was fully crucified in the place for His people. And the fullness of God's wrath was poured upon them so that now there is therefore no condemnation, no accusation which can be brought against us. Why? Because He set aside the demands of the law by, by piercing it to the cross and therefore defeating the one who had power over death and liberating 
all those from the freedom that were in slavery to death. I hope this gives you a whole new view of the cross. So much happened at Calvary. So much victory happened at Calvary. There was no plausible salvation that happened at Calvary. No possible salvation. No um, hopeful salvation. It really happened. It was perfect redemption. It was fully accomplished at Calvary. That's why the writer of Hebrews can say so boldly, once and for all, Mm -hmm. that Christ was sacrificed for our place. Because it was fully completed. And it's why when he comes back, he need not try to redo anything, recapitulate anything, because it has been fully completed. When he comes, it is not to create another partial state. It is to destroy the remaining remnants and to dwell with his people forever in glory. So he's bound, and we're told that he's bound now for the length. So we see the length of his binding. He's bound for 1,000 years. And like I said earlier, my argument is that the 1,000 years represents the entire church age. It's not meant to be taken literally. Just as not a single number in Revelation has been meant to be taken literally. Every one of them have been symbolic. And then all of a sudden we want to make this one literal. It's like, no, you've got to be consistent in the way that you interpret throughout the book. Secondly, let's say, are there any passages in the Bible that uses 1,000 symbolically? Yes. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Is that it? No. He owns all the cattle. The word a thousand in the Bible just means a whole lot. It means a vast multitude. You know, for us, we live in the world of billions and trillions, even though we can't count that high. But a thousand was a lot. Man, that's a picture. 144,000, right? 7,000 stadia we'll see in Revelation 21. Right? This word a thousand means a lot. So this a thousand years is a picture of the church age. And the reason why is because I just simply think it means the entirety, right? The fullness, the, the vast number, the completion of all of God's perfect plan and authority of Christ's reign. This is just simply a number that denotes the entirety of Christ's reign. Because notice, in 1 Corinthians 15, we won't look there tonight, but after Christ comes and consummates His kingdom, what's the next thing He does? Does He keep reigning over it in just a regular sense? No. He gives it to who? His Father. He gives it to His Father. It becomes the Father's kingdom. It's the Father's world. He comes and consummates, then hands it to His Father, saying it's all yours. That's the way He glorifies His Father. And it becomes His. So the thousand years simply just means the full consummative reign of Christ, which started when? Calvary. This marks the entire church age. Another title is called the Era of Proclamation. When the gospel is going forth, the kingdom is advancing. It's also titled the Day of Salvation. That's important. Because do we read anywhere in Scripture that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years like a day? We'll read that in a second. But before we do, I want you to hear when this day of salvation came. And where, when, it, when it currently is. Like, is it, are we in the day of salvation? The answer is absolutely. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. 
beginning in verse 18 through the second verse of chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 through 6, 2. Paul is talking about how we, through Christ, have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Why? Because Christ reconciled you to God. When did He do that? The cross. This is what he says, verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, listen, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The greatest gospel passage right there. Working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says... In a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. It's right now. And when Christ came to Calvary, He began the process of what? God reconciling the world to Himself. How can that happen? The strong man's bound. Mm -hmm. That's how it can happen. He's bound from deceiving the nations in a way that they can root out this ministry of reconciliation that's happening. Even in their greatest attempts, they can't stop it. When is this day of salvation? It's right now, Paul says. Right now is the favorable time. So all, uh, and you know where he got that passage out of? He got the passage out of Isaiah. Which is a promise that many premillennials say, well, that needs to be fulfilled in the new millennium. No, it doesn't. Paul says right now it's happening. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day when he is gathering the lame and the outcast. Now is the day when he heals the, the blind and, and the lame. Now is the day that he, he goes forth with his people like flames coming out of their mouth to, to devour all those who he has brought for himself with a fire of the gospel that purifies them and refines them. That's right now happening. And this is precisely when Peter gave that talk about a day as is a thousand years. It's this day of salvation that he had in mind. I want you to look at the context. You're, you're, um, I got a typo in your notes. It's 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. We all know one verse in this because we say it all the time. But I want you to hear it in the context. Mm-hmm. Hear what he's talking about here. The context is he's talking about the day of the Lord, right? And there are many scoffers who are saying, oh, it's, not, it's either already come or it's never going to come. But I want you to talk about when he says, this is when he will come. Right? So let's read it. First, or 2 Peter 3, 8-10. But do not overlook this fact, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, 
but is patient towards you. Who's the you? It's his people. Toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should repeat, should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter here is combating these false teachers who are saying Christ is never going to come or, you know, where is he at? And there's people doubting, you know, when, when is he going to come? Is he waiting? And what Peter wants them to know is he'll come when the fullness of his people are gathered. That's why he is being slow, because he's still gathering people. That's why he's patient. He's still got people to gather from the nations. But, Peter says, when it's done, he will come in judgment. So this thousand years is one day. What he's trying to teach the people there is it may be a long time before he comes. But take heart. Every moment he delays, it's for gathering more. So the 1,000 years was actually meant to be an encouragement to the early church. We'll see that especially in verse 4 through 6. Because even if you get beheaded, you reign. So we'll see that next week. But for now, the 1,000 years is a picture of, no, this 1,000 years, it's going to be a long time. And it may not be right now. It may not be immediate. But he's going to reign for a long time. But every moment that he's reigning and not coming back, it's a glorious reality of the victory of the gospel gathering people from the nations. It's a thousand years is one day. One day is a thousand years to the Lord. And it is the day of salvation. It is the day of the Lord. And, and, and Peter couldn't make that more clear when he preaches Joel in Acts 2. It's the day of the Lord. And then there will be the day of the Lord. When he comes again to consummate what he's already inaugurated in his millennial reign over the church. Now let's talk about this because I get it. I hear the skepticism. I know I hear it all the time. Well, if Satan's bound, then how is there so much bad stuff happening? Does that mean he's not influencing the nations? That he's not, you know, tempting people and doing anything? Text doesn't say anything about that. Text doesn't say anything about him not still being active in the world or doing things like that. The text gives one purpose for his binding. Notice what it says in Revelation 20. What's the one purpose it gives? What's the one thing that says happens through this binding? What's this binding for? Threw him in the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. All right, so let's talk about this. So he cannot deceive the nations until the thousand years have ended. Hmm. We've already talked, made the argument that the thousand years refers to the church age. So if we take that view, we're saying that at the end of the church age, Satan is released now to bring a massive deception amongst the unbelieving nations to come against God's people. Have we read that anywhere in Revelation? A lot. Multiple times we have seen at the end of the age, the nations will be deceived to come against God's people. So what this text is teaching then 
is that the binding of Satan was to simply seal him or keep him from bringing any kind of mass effort which could have come against and blotted out the church. Can't happen. It won't happen until the fullness has been happened, until the fullness of the gospel has been preached and Christ's people have been gathered from the nations. Then he will release Satan to now be able to bring about that deception, which will only be for the purpose of his own judgment. See more about that next time. So let's look at some of these passages, right? About his deception of the nation. Just to make clear, remember the immediate context. Look at all of these repeating cycles that we've seen. It Beginning in Revelation 9, verses 11 through 16. Here we have the trumpet judgments. And guess what? This is the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments, which we talked about what? Mark the end of the church age, beginning in verse 11. They have as, has, have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is called Apollyon, basically the destroyer. This is Satan. The first woe is past, the old two woes still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns, the golden altar before God, saying to the six angels who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the uh, river, great river Euphrates. So the four angels who have been prepared for the hour of the day and the month of the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. How in the world did they get so many? Because the nations are gathered, right? Here's one vision that we've already got. Let's look at another vision. Revelation 16, 14. Revelation 16, 14. Another gathering of this mass army at the end of the age. Here we have the bowl judgments. And guess what? This is the sixth bowl judgment, which marks what? The very end of the church age. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments that they may expose. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Right? Already another picture of this late, this end times gathering that will take place at the very end of of the church age. Let's look at another one which we saw last week, Revelation 19, 19. And I saw the beasts and kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Who is the one on the horse? Jesus. Who's his army? We are. Right? The gathering of the, the, the kings to come against them at the very end of the age. Let's look what we're going to see again in about... Three weeks in Revelation 20, verse 8. What happens when Satan is released? And when a thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers is like the sand of the sea. Maybe like 10,000 times 10,000 like we saw in Revelation 9. And they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's the second fire Pastor Freddie talked about this morning. We've seen this over and over again. It's the same story. Different vantage point. Different picture. Different focus of what's being taught there. But once again, this is what he's being bound from. He's still actively at work under the authority of Jesus. In the world, doing all kinds of things, being mischievous, thinking that he's trying to harm the people, going around like a roaring lion, Peter says. But you know what he can't do? He cannot bring a consummating force to come against the church of Jesus Christ 
and stop the gospel. He cannot do it because he's bound by Calvary. Mm -hmm. He can't stop it. And that's why Jesus can say, not one of my elect will be lost. Not one of them. All that the Father gives to me will come to me and I will raise them up on the last day. Why? Because Satan's bound from doing anything to stop it. And there will be a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because he's bound by Calvary. So what does this mean? What are the effects of this binding? It means the unstoppable advancement of the gospel and the gathering of every lost sheep from the nations. That's what it means. This is what the book of Acts is all about. This is why Luke tacks on the book of Acts. To make it clear that everything Jesus does in that gospel isn't the end. It's what he continues to do, O Theophilus. He is advancing his kingdom from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to all the nations. Why? Because he's bound the strong man by Calvary. Because if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. All peoples. This is what it is. This means that the gospel will go forth unhindered and it will not be stopped until Christ has fully gathered the fullness of his lost sheep. And he'll be perfect in doing so. Now we're going to do some biblical theology. Because this is what it's always been about. To show you that this is what's happening right now. The reign, the rule, and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. So let's talk about some biblical theology for a while to close out tonight. We all know the story of the Bible. God creates a perfect world. He creates both a spiritual realm and an earthly realm. In the spiritual realm, He has has angels and He calls them His sons. Right? The sons of God, they're called in Scripture. Not the Son of God, but sons of God. They're called Elohim in Scripture. The plural form of gods, little g. It's why so often you'll see in the, the Old Testament, little gods, the gods of this age, or the gods of this. They're called Elohim. You don't need to get all uptight about that. There's only one creator God, Yahweh. But He creates spiritual beings. It says It's why it says in the Psalms, that they were there singing over the creation, the morning stars. Fortunately, one of them fell. And with it, some went with him. Many went with him. He failed to take the other son of God he created on earth now, physical son of God, Adam, to corrupt him, to corrupt his creation of Satan, the great serpent. And with it came the fall both spiritual sons and a physical son have now fallen and rebelled against their creator. And we see this happening. Man continues to rebel and God establishes a faithful line through Seth. But the sons of men continue to grow. And they continue to grow in their wickedness and corruption. But with that, these angels also grow in their corruption. God, these, these angels look upon the women of the earth seeking to lust over them, to desire over them in a way that is both unnatural and against what God's desire was. 
And in doing so, God sees this wicked desires among them. He sees the corruption. And thus, He brings the flood. And He destroys all of humanity with the exception of eight. Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives. And He establishes a new covenant with Noah that will bring about a means of common grace that will bring stability. Yet the curse still remains. We see that very quickly with Noah himself. And through Noah's son, God establishes new nations. We can look to Genesis 10. And in Genesis 10, there are 70 nations that are established through the sons of Noah. 70 nations. These are called the table of nations or the Noahic nations. But in the book of Genesis, there are actually two other nations that are formed. Israel and Edom. Isaac and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Giving us a total of 72 nations. It's going to be very important in a moment. From the 72 nations... We see these, this time, though, they all have a shared language. And the corruption is there in a shared purpose. And so one of the desires that they have, rather than going and multiplying and filling the earth, which God had covenanted Noah, recapitulating that covenant given with Adam to go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, they all stay in one place. They desire to build a tower for their name's sake. The tower would be called Babel. Why? Because God, looking down upon this tower and seeing the wickedness of men, being disobedient once more, seeking to come together to try to overthrow His throne, just like sin always tries to do, what does He do? He confuses their language and He scatters them out to the world. Language is confused and He scatters them. In the end of Deuteronomy, near the end of Moses' life, he sings a song. And recapitulates the story of Babel. And he tells us something interesting that God did after he scattered the nations. Deuteronomy chapter 29, or excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 through 9. Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9. Listen to what we see happens here. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind, talking about Babel here, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Now, there are some manuscripts, the Masoretic text, which just tried to be weird, that calls it according to the number of the sons of Israel. problem with that is there was no Israel when it was divided, when Babel was scattered. It could be the sons of Israel. There were no sons of Israel. There was no thing as Israel. When Babel was dispersed. It's according to the number of the sons of God. Now, who are these sons of God in Scripture? These are these angelic beings. So God appoints angelic beings over the the nations. It's why, like in books like Daniel and others, when who is Michael? Michael is the prince of Israel. Why? He is the angel that has been given watch over the people of God. God's portion who He took to Himself, which we read about in verse 9 of Deuteronomy 32. But you see passages like Daniel and Ezekiel where Michael is fighting against the prince of Persia. Is he fighting against like a literal prince? No. He's talking about this spirit that has been placed over these other nations. 
They've been allotted to the sons of God. God put these angelic beings, these spiritual beings, over the nations of His divine counsel. And yet these spiritual leaders were wicked. And they did not righteously rule and lead those nations as spirit beings, but rather fell into the same deception as the God of this age, little g, Satan. We read about that in Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Turn with me there. I want to read the whole psalm. Psalm 82. This divine indictment on the little g, gods of this nation. Psalm 82. God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge or understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundation of the earth are shaken. Listen to this. I said you are God, sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die. And fall like any prince. Arise, O God. Judge the earth. For you shall inherit all the nations. Notice the indictment against these sons of God. These little g-gods. They are going to die like men. It says. Well, if this is talking about earthly judges, then that doesn't make any sense. Of course they're going to die like men. This is talking about these fallen beings, right, that have corrupted the nations, that have fallen into the same deception and be led astray and have sought to lead the people of God astray and the nations astray. Rather than pushing them towards Israel and towards light and towards truth, they have breeded the corruption and accepted worship themselves. Which is why, what does Paul say in the Scriptures? That when the nations offer uh, worship to idols, they offer it to demons. When they offer uh, worship to false gods, they do so to demons. Why? Because these are the fallen sons, the fallen spirits. The nations were scattered. Unable to connect because of the confusing language. Underneath fallen and wicked rulers of principalities and powers that sought to lead them into further darkness and idolatry and wickedness. Blinded or veiled, as Paul says, by the God of this age. We saw a promise in Psalm 82. God shall inherit the nations. So how would he do it? By Yahweh taking flesh himself. By not a son of God, but the son of God coming. The only, the monogamous theos, the only unique Son of God. Why? Because He is not like these other spiritual beings. He is Yahweh Himself taking upon flesh. And He comes to lay waste to these beings. And He has come to bind. That's why He's casting out these demons. The kingdom of God has come to inherit the nations, to be raised up so that He can draw all people to Himself. Unless you think that I, that's not true. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. 
We've all heard this story. But now you'll understand the number. Luke chapter 10, verse 1 through 2, and then 17 through 19. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Seventy-two? Seems like an interesting number. But how many nations were established in Genesis? Seventy-two. And you know what earlier manuscripts say, or some manuscripts say? Seventy. Why? Because they were simply basing it off the Noahic nations. They forgot to add Israel and Edom, those, those later translators, which is why 72 is the correct and the earliest. And the reason why Luke wants that 72 instead of just 70 placed there, because he wants to know Israel needs salvation too. Not just the nations. Israel needs it just as much as the nations. And then look at what happens to this 72 when they return. Verse 17 through 19. Then the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Mm. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is in heaven. What did the 72 go out and prove? The gospel was going to go forth and nothing was going to stop it. The, the, The strong man was being bound. The demons had no power to stop it. They couldn't stop it. The gospel was too powerful. The Holy Spirit inside of them is too powerful. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. The 72 were going out. Why? Because Christ had come to inherit the nations. Just like Psalm 82 had said. And every time the gospel was being proclaimed and people were being saved and victory was being declared, it was all constant declaration of judgment on those fallen spirits. You can't stop it. You can't stop it. Unless you still think that this has nothing to do with that Genesis 10 and 11. What's the next thing that happens in the pro after Christ ascends? Pentecost. Yeah. What happens at Pentecost? Language. Mm-hmm. Tongues. Where everyone now hears the gospel in their own language. The curse of Babel is being reversed. Right. The nations are being inherited. Jesus is victorious. And his people will be gathered. This is redemptive history. Mm -hmm. This is the story of scripture. This is the gospel. And this, brothers and sisters, is what you and I are very much a part of today. We are still a part of the gathering. We are still a part of the going. We are still a part of the gospel. We are still in the kingdom. And Satan can't stop it. The demons can't get in the way. You've got no reason to fear. You've got no reason to be timid, no reason to be afraid, because the gospel is victorious. 
You have the greatest weapon of all and they can't touch you. As we'll see next week, even the worst thing man can do to you is only send you to glory in Christ. You already reign with Him. You've already been seated in heavenly places. You're already victorious. And to bring this full circle, you know what, why, what Jesus now meant when He said, you shall judge angels? He's talking about those ones that you have replaced on the divine council. Those angels that once had authority over the nations and once sought to lead men astray that have been removed from that divine council, where do the saints of God now sit? In the throne room of heaven. And they sit in judgment over those fallen spirits. And they say every day, you have lost. You have lost. That's what it means when it says we'll judge angels. We now sit in the throne of heaven with our Lord. And we'll see more of that next time. Text closes with Satan being released. It says for a little while at the end of the thousand years. He will be released for a little while. And we'll see what that is. That's going to be very clear. It's the end of the church age. It's when this comes to an end. Matthew 24, 14, right? The gospel will be proclaimed to all the nations and then the end will come. When the Christ has gathered the fullness of His people, then He will release Satan. But notice, it's just for a little while. As opposed to the thousand years where He's reigned and gathered His people. That little tribulation period at the end that he brings against the people of God, that raising up that gathering, it's just for a little while. It'll be nothing compared to the victory of Christ. And he will come and he will consummate in utter and complete power as we will see in Revelation 27 through 10. But once again, we've already seen this picture. And I want to close by reading Revelation 11. Once again, now in light of everything we've seen about the two witnesses, which we argued was merely the faithful witness of the church. Listen to what it says about these faithful witnesses in Revelation 11, 3-10. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Close the sackcloth. That's technically three and a half years, a long time. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foe. What's that? It's gospel. The preaching. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes them. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Why? Because that's judgment. When you reject the fire of the gospel coming from mouth, you put yourself under judgment. Further judgment. Because you've rejected the light of Christ. Right? Right? They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague so often, as often as they desire. Whatever you ask in my name, I shall give to you. This is the power of prayer. The prayer that goes with the saints. That's all this is a picture of. It's not being weird or esoteric. It's just saying there's power in the church. There's real power here. There's real power in prayer. There's real power in the Holy Spirit. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. 
Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will exchange over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those. This is the picture of the, the vindication of the church. Notice, the witnesses preach and have victory for 1,260 days. Long time. Three and a half years. They are victorious. Nothing can stop them. And it's only until their testimony is complete that the beast rises up. Why? Because that's when Satan's unbound, right? When it's complete. And then their torment, their perceived death, only lasts for three and a half days. A little while. A short time. Compared to the victory of their testimony. We've already seen this before. You see the recapitulations. New sights. Same victory. So, what is our takeaway from the binding of Satan? My friends, first, as a Christian, you have absolutely zero reason to fear him. You have zero reason to be afraid of Satan. You do not need to be fearful of him at all. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Period. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you. You are the temple of the living God. You have the seal of God upon you and the word of God in you. The seal of God upon you, word of God in you, Holy Spirit in you. You have no reason to fear. So don't, don't, don't walk in this world tempted, uh, timid and afraid and, and as if like he's just getting the best of you. Stop it. The only thing you've got to overcome is the remaining sin that's in you. And you fight it and make war on it and mortify it. But Satan got no victory on you. can't do anything to you. You have no reason to fear him. Secondly, Jesus defeated the force of darkness in his first coming. He really did something. <laughs> he really did. You weren't a plan B. You weren't another option. You weren't a, well, this is my best effort. He really beat Satan at Calvary. He really beat death at Calvary. He really saved his people at Calvary. All the spiritual forces in his darkness were absolutely destroyed, which is why Peter said that in his resurrection, he went to the grave and proclaimed victory over the spirits in prison. Thirdly, the kingdom of God is here and now and advancing. And we're a part of it. We're a part of it. And we will be, and whether we go on to be with glory, where we'll still be a part of it, as far as along with those heavenly witnesses, or when he returns to consummate it. For the, sus, the success of the gospel is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. Every single person that the Lord set upon his heart to save will be saved. Completely, utterly, fully. They will be saved. They will be saved. The gospel will be victorious. He will have an innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Why? Because Christ is victorious. It will be successful in what it came to do. Lastly, because of this truth, because of this grand reality, go and make disciples. We say this every Sunday. There's a reason. It's because you can. You've been given authority through the Holy Spirit in you and the Word of God to go make disciples. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Why? Because that's when this will be over. That commission, that call doesn't stop till when? Till I come back. So go and make disciples. Why? Because you can. Because I've empowered you to. Because I will make a way. 
Because just like Paul who went into Corinth and was discouraged at what he saw, Paul was ready to leave Corinth. He saw that in Acts 18. And what kept him there? Jesus coming to him in a vision and saying, Stay, for I have many people in this city. And he stayed there for another 18 months. That's the victory of the gospel. And it will be perfect in saving everyone that Christ has set to save. Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. So you need not fear or fret. But whenever that least loosing happens, it will be but for a short while. And it will only be to set up his judgment and a declaration that the victory of the kingdom is drawing all close to its final consummation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. So much here in this text. So much here in all of this. And God, I just pray that, um, that we would continue to dive in our word and celebrate the glorious truths of the gospel, of what you have done in Jesus Christ. Lord, there's so much here, and it can stretch our minds beyond, but more importantly, God, let it move upon our hearts. Let it move upon our hearts of the victory of Jesus. The victory of Jesus at Calvary should be so just constantly singing over our heart, pressing upon our mind, moving us to action, because Christ is victorious. He reigns. And Lord, you didn't give us the spirit of fear. You gave us the spirit of power and strength and a spirit to go and to be and to do and to speak and to live for you. So God, pour your fire upon us. Refine us in an amazing way. Cause us to be your people. Take us to the gospel uh, with the gospel. Let let us go forward that we might uh, in many ways be the means that you draw many to yourself, many to salvation as you plunder the house. And as you continue to inherit the nations, Lord, we thank you for coming. We thank you for saving. We thank you for reigning. And we long for your return. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.